0: up uh, new dimensions to us. (laughs) Somebody Scientists talk about parallel universes. We've known about those for years. Lord, we just pray that you would open up new dimensions in the Spirit to us, that we begin to see what's never been seen, so we can do what's never been done. Father, I pray for new perspectives, new paradigms, new attitudes, new core values. Lord, new ideas, creative ideas, that inventions and innovations would grow on us today. Father, that we would move into the spirit of bringing the good news. How many you know our world needs the good news? Okay, let me finish praying. Lord, we just pray for the good news. That we'd be bearers of the good news in the name of Jesus. That no longer would our messages sound like something out of the New York Times. But Lord, that we'd preach the, the kingdom. That we would preach the kingdom. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, would you turn to Luke chapter 7? And while you're turning there, I just want to make a comment. This is uh, not exactly to do with the message, but I felt the Lord uh, say this to me about a few days ago, and I've just been writing some notes about it in my journal. We're going to be on verse 18 when we start. Jesus said, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. How many of you know that Jesus is building his church? And how many of you know that Jesus instructed us to preach the kingdom? He didn't instruct us to preach the church or build the church. He said for us to go to church, encourage the church, love the church. But he said he'd build the church. So his job is to build to build the church. Our job is to build the kingdom. How many know that all the church is in the kingdom, but not all the kingdoms in the church? We're going to learn the difference soon because we've taken on his responsibility and wonder why the kingdom's not being extended. <laughs> well, that's just a thought. Verse eighteen. The disciples, are you there? Did I say Luke? Yeah, it's the book of Luke. The disciples of John reported to Jesus about, the things, about these things summoning, and summoning two of his disciples. John sent to them, to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we have to look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you and asked, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? And at that very time he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and he gave them sight so that many, uh, to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go report to John what you've seen and what you've heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed, are, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. But, they, um, but what did they go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who are, who are splendidly clothed live in luxurious places and are found in royal palaces. But what did they go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about who is written, Behold, I send you the messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way for you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is not one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom is greater than than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected John's purposes for themselves, having not been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children who sit at the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, "We played the flute for you, and you did not dance." And we sang the dirge, but you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, um, come I'm sorry for John, the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, "He has a demon." The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, "Behold a gluttonous man, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her children. I want to talk this morning about um, two epic seasons. And I want to ask you, are you singing the dirge, or are you playing the flute? Turn to uh, Acts chapter 18. And um, we're going to just pick up here. I'm going to read a little bit, and then we're going to talk some more. John, uh, I mean, sorry, Acts 18. Now a Jew named, a Jew named Apollos and axil- Exiled Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit, and he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John and He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately and when he when he wanted to go on across to Arcacia. The brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those uh, uh, speaking powerfully in demonstrations uh, of the Spirit. Um, and Paul goes on to ask um, some of the believers. He said, when you, when you received Christ, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, we don't know about the Holy Spirit. We were only baptized into the baptism of John. And then Paul goes on to talk to them about the baptism of Jesus and they received, you remember that story, they received. They got baptized and they began to speak in other tongues and so on and so forth. I, I can't tell you how many times I, I, I felt recently that the church has been baptized into the baptism of John and is completely unfamiliar with the baptism of Jesus. In, in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 42, he says, The former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim new things to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. Now, I, I, I want to propose to you that when Isaiah is talking about singing a new song, the former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim new things to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. I want to proclaim. To, I want to propose to you that John, I mean that Isaiah, isn't talking about a song, that he's using it as a metaphor, if you will, and he's saying to them, um, listen, what, because the former things have come to pass, it's time to sing a new song, and he's using the word song. As, an, as to say, a new way of thinking. In other words, Jesus said, John sang the dirge, and you didn't mourn. I played the flute, and you didn't dance. Jesus never, It's never recorded that Jesus played a flute, or that John ever sang the dirge. You, are, you, are you with me? In other words, they're using music as a metaphor for their ministries. And John sang the dirge. And how many of you know that John was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, but the least in the kingdom is greater than John? Are you following me? There's there's so many Christians who feel like it's their responsibility to sing the dirge. You know what the dirge is. It's the song that they sang at funerals. It's the sad song. And Jesus said, I played the flute and you didn't dance. And, And in the book of Acts... It was Apollos who was only acquainted with the baptism of John. What is the baptism of John? It's singing the dirge. Are you with me? We're called to play the flute, not sing the the dirge. The greatest prophet in the Old Testament sang the dirge. But the greatest prophet in the New Testament played the flute. And how many of you know that God is, is creating an epic shift in the way that we do ministry? We're called to bring the gospel, which is what? The good news. It's interesting. I just thought, there's, a, there's, you know how the Lord does stuff that's like a prophetic act, like you have to have eyes to see it? Do you know what I mean? Like some people will just look at something and they'll go, that's kind of strange. And other people will go, that's the voice of God. Isn't it interesting that both Jesus and John's clothing are mentioned in the Bible? I mean, there's tons of people who ministered never, the, the Bible never talks about how they were dressed. But it says, look at this. John came, Mark 1 6. John was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Jesus, John 19. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took the outer garment, and made four parts, a part for every soldier, and also the tunic. But and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless and woven in one place, so they cast lots for it. John is dressed with camel's hair, a belt around his waist. He's eating locusts and wild honey. Jesus, how's Jesus dressed? Jesus is dressed with some, some with a garment so expensive that when they when they when he was crucified, they gambled and they used his garment as the reward as the award for whoever won. gambling tournament are you with me what i'm getting at is that does isn't that such a metaphor for the difference in their ministry one guy's eating locusts and wild honey he's what and he's preaching in the wilderness and what is he preaching what's what's john's message repent for the kingdom is at hand and he's baptizing people into repentance are you with me what's what's john when john shows up what's john's first message repent for the kingdom of god is at hand What's Jesus' first public message? It's a wedding. Where what does he do at the wedding? Listen, John shows up, and where's John at? The John shows up in the wilderness preaching repentance. Where does Jesus' first ministry start? At a wedding. And what's Jesus doing at the wedding? celebrating and making wine when they ran out listen you didn't get baptized into John's baptism you got baptized into Jesus's baptism <clears throat> man I hope you can get this there <laughs> it is there's some there's something about being there's something spiritual about wanting to be crucified how many know when you received Jesus you were crucified with Christ But it says, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. That's the word right there. He endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. Are you with me? (laughs) Somebody once said, He who gives the most hope has the most influence. How many know that our world needs hope? Bill made a powerful statement not too long ago. He said, You know, these days all you need is a New York Times and an Old Testament to have a prophetic ministry. (laughs) I really believe it's important to realize that we've come into a new covenant, that we're in a new season. This is called a new covenant. But, uh, you know, um, Jesus, at, at his uh, inauguration, he sits down, you know, for for hundreds of years. It may have been thousands. I'm not sure exactly. But for hundreds of years, they had a seat in the temple where they believed that when the Messiah came on the scene, that he would sit in that seat. So no one had ever sat in that seat before. And then Jesus comes on the scene he goes in the synagogue, which was his custom. They say, and it was his custom to read in the synagogue. But he does something very powerful at his inauguration speech. He goes and he preach and he shares. And I think it's in uh, the book of Luke. Let's see here, Ver, uh, verse uh, four, chapter four, verse eighteen. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, release the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set those free who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but when Jesus, and and then, well, let me just finish this part. And then he sits in the seat, saved for the Messiah, and it says, every eye was on him. Why? Because he just sat in the Messiah's seat. But his inauguration speech is very interesting because he's quoting Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the afflicted, to bind up the broken hearts to speak release to captives, freedom to prisoners, the, uh, the favorable year of the Lord. And the rest of the sentence is the day of vengeance of our God. But you'll notice that when Jesus uses that that declaration as his inaugurational speech he stops in the middle of the sentence and does not finish the day of vengeance of our God he stops at the favorable year of the Lord what I'm getting at I realize that there's more to the scripture there but what I'm telling you is he stops at the comma he doesn't even finish the sentence the day of vengeance of our God why because Jesus did not come to judge the world But he came that the world might be saved. Listen, here's what I'm trying to get you to see. Do you know what an epic is? An epic in God. An epic means a certain way that God deals with a certain people in a certain time. A certain way that God deals with a certain people in a certain time. What were the sons of Issachar famous for? We quote this verse all the time. I've heard it quoted more often in the last five years than probably all of my... 34 35 years as a Christian the sons of Issachar understood the times Point one they understood the times Point two they understood what Israel should do in the times Are you with me? They understood the times That's one thing they understood what Israel should do in the times I'm concerned that the church doesn't realize that we've just changed epic seasons First of all, I want to say this. I'm concerned that the church doesn't realize that the cross changed epic seasons. That no longer are we supposed to sing the dirge because we're baptized into the dance. And that there is a difference between the last days and the last day. I I want to read you a, a, a verse. Listen to this. The book of Malachi says this. And it's often quoted by the New Testament. Oops, I guess it would be before the New Testament. (laughs) Man, uh, you guys are going to love my new Bible. I'm coming out with the Chris Dalton alphabetical. (laughs) Just going to be so awesome. Old Testament, New Testament, it won't matter. It's just going to be in alphabetical order. (laughs) For all of us who never went to seminary, listen to this. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible get this. This is important. Day of the Lord. What's the what's it called? Great and terrible. Okay, now turn to Acts chapter two, seventeen. Acts chapter two, verse seventeen. You'll know these verses well. How are we doing for time? All right. These men, verse 15, these men are not drunk as you suppose. You know this part of the story. This is what's spoken of by the prophet Joel. It shall come about in the last days. Everybody say last days. Last days. In the last days. I want to, first of all, I want to propose to you that there's a difference between the last day and the last days. There's, the last day is mentioned nine times in the New Testament. And it's always mentioned, it's, the last day is always congruent with Judgment Day. The last days are mentioned several times in the New Testament, and they're always mentioned as a spirit of reconciliation. Now, I want to show you, look at this. He goes on to say this It shall come about in the last days that I shall pour out my spirit upon all mankind. What's God doing in the last days? He's pouring out His Spirit upon all mankind. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. You know about this. Upon your bondservants, they shall all prophesy. Verse 19, I will grant wonders in the sky, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor, smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord. How many of you know that Joel looks ahead and he says hey, I'm going to pour out God's, God, He prophesies into the future, and Peter says, that is this. Listen, you think these people are drunk, but this is the beginning of what Joel preached, which Joel called the, the last days, and he called the last days great and glorious. Malachi said there's a last day coming that's great and terrible, but Joel saw that there was a difference between great and terrible and great and glorious. Are you with me? When did great and glorious happen? It says, when the sun turned dark and the moon turned to blood. Now, first of all, i got to just give you a little background. In Jewish culture, they were accustomed to God speaking in hieroglyphics. Let me give you an example. Do you remember when Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph, has a dream? And he sees, his, he sees wheat bowing down to him. His brothers immediately know it's them. And then he has another dream. And in the dream, he saw the sun and the moon bowing down to him. And he tells his father, I saw the sun and the moon, and they were bowing down to me. And instantly, without hesitation, his father says, You mean your mother and I are going to bow down to you? He didn't, you understand, he said the sun and the moon are going to bow down. But his parents immediately knew that the sun and the moon represented them. It's really difficult when we let teachers. Okay, I got to be careful. This is this is podcast. It's in, it's really difficult when we let the gift of teacher interpret prophetic revelation. Prophets interpret prophetic revelations. Teachers interpret scripture. When did the glorious, great, and glorious day start? When the sun turned dark and the moon turned to blood. What did, what did Joel see? He saw that the Lord was going to pour out His Spirit. And what would mark it? The sun would turn dark and the moon would turn to blood. How many know that when Jesus died on the cross, the sun, it says, the sun was turned to dark. It was darkened. And guess what? And what happened to Jesus? He turned to blood. What was Jesus Colossians says that he was the very reflection of the Father. How many know the moon doesn't have a light of its own? It reflects the sun. How many know that when the sun turned dark, the moon turned to blood? When the sun turned dark and the moon turned to blood, we started in this epic season called Great and Glorious. We moved out of the dirge and into the dance. A whole bunch of people are mourning when they should be dancing. And they see something every time people who are, in the, who, who are singing the dirge see any signs that are negative. They go, well, here it goes. This is the great and terrible. Judgment's coming. They'll see uh, uh, the economy start to crash. And they'll go, that's judgment of God. The Twin Towers, the judgment of God. I want to tell you something. There's a difference between sowing and reaping and judgment. That's right. Come on. You've got to get this. Now, let me just i think i can read it better judgment and sowing and reaping are not the same thing judgment is a decision made by god to make people to to make to make or punish people or reward their action i wrote that wrong judgment is a decision made by god to either punish people or reward them for their actions judgment judgment means that god makes a decision are you following me and let me finish this Sowing and reaping is the natural outcome of whatever seeds planted. I don't believe that God's making judgments against us. I think He's actually trying to save us from reaping what we've sowed. Therefore, judgment puts God on the side of increasing the severity of our own consequences when, in fact, He's actually trying to release us from the seeds of our own demise. Let me give you a really simple example. If you could just see in the housing market as an example... If wages are increasing at 2% a year, and housing is increasing, the price of houses are increasing at 20 to 30% a year in, in most places. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that pretty soon the people who have money that actually have a job where they're getting increases can't afford the houses. So what did they do? The, the banks only make money when they loan when they loan money. How many know it's like a dairy farmer? If you run out of milk, you're not going to make money. What do banks sell? They sell money. So who do they sell money to? People who can afford to buy money, which are people who have jobs. But if the job if the job increases, if the wages are only increasing at two percent and housing is increasing at twenty to twenty five percent, how many know that this gap is growing wider and wider? So what do they do? What do the banks do? Remember, banks have to loan money. It's the only way they make money. Pretty soon they have to say, well, we have to have have some way for these people who have a job to actually afford these houses. So they start giving 90% loans instead of 80% loans to close the gap. Pretty soon, 90% loans aren't good enough and the housing market's still increasing and the banks feel very confident that they're going to increase forever, which is not rational. (laughs) But it's based in greed. So what happens? So they go, we'll start giving 100% loans. Why are they giving 100% loans? Because they have to get these people who have jobs to be able to afford these houses because that's the only way they make money. Once they give 100% loans, we have a whole new dynamic that happens. Because if my house that I... If I, if I put down 20%, let's say I, I bought a $200,000 house and I put down $40,000. So I realize you don't have $200,000 houses in this area. This is for the people who are on the podcast. <laughs> if you have a $200,000 house, you put down 80%, you put 40%, you put $40,000 down, and suddenly your house drops in value Guess what? You're going to hang on to that house because you put 40000 of your hard-working dollars in it and you're going to just be like, the market will turn around, we aren't ready to sell anyway, and we'll get our 40000 back in five years. But guess what? If you got a 100% loan, you have nothing invested. <laughs> so w- it, when your $200,000 house becomes a $150,000 house, you're like, I'm out of this house. Here, you can have your house back. Why? I have nothing invested. And all I'm getting at is the housing crisis wasn't caused by judgment, it was caused by sowing and reaping, and anyone who stands back could see, this isn't the judgment of God, this is stupidity of man. All I'm trying to get you to see is that if you're, if you're singing the dirge, you're looking for evidence that you're supposed to be sad. But you've come into a kingdom that, this is the kingdom, it's not eat or drink, but it's righteousness peace and joy two thirds of the kingdom are happy thoughts <laughs> dude okay oh we got just a few minutes let me just finish this second corinthians 5:17 we all love this these verses if any man be in christ he's a new creation all things have passed away and all things have become new what's the next verse and god was in christ Reconciling the world to himself. How did he do it? Next part of the verse. Not counting their trespasses against them. Next verse says, And we have been given the ministry of what? Reconciliation. As if God was begging through us, be reconciled to God. What is the ministry we've been given in the last days? The ministry of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? Not counting their trespasses against them. That's the ministry we've been given. And I want to just tell you something, for those of you that are mad. (laughs) When the epic season changes to the day of the Lord, it's called the day of the Lord. It's mentioned nine times, the day of the Lord. And it's mentioned as a great and terrible day. I don't want to, like, ruin your job description, but you won't be the judge. (laughs) On judgment day, when the epic season changes, you won't even be the judge. You'll be judged. And, and for us, it's called a great day. It's a day we get our stuff. Yeah. Listen to this. Uh, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I am conscious of nothing against myself. He's saying, I don't know that I've done anything wrong. I'm doing anything wrong. I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. Yet I'm not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Before the time. But wait until the Lord comes, who will bring, bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Now watch this. And each man's praise will come to him from God. Wait, did you get that last sentence? And then, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, I I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. I I don't know that I'm doing anything wrong. I'm not acquitted by this. Why? Because it's not the time. It's not the day of the Lord. But in the time, in the day of the Lord, the Lord will turn up the light. And when the Lord turns up the light, we will see things we've never seen before. And what does Paul say will happen when the Lord turns up the light? He says, then our praise will come from God. How many of you know that we spent a lot of time this morning praising God? But on Judgment Day, God will praise you. <laughs> That's just a good word right there. Uh, maybe you need a few scriptures. Second Corinthians 3.7 But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day, everybody say day, of judgment and destruction of godly men in the book of Jude and the angels did, who did not keep their proper dominion but abandoned their proper abode he is kept in eternal bounds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. First John four seventeen by this love is perfected so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. I, I can just go on. I have them all listed. Here's the point. There is a day coming. No one's going to get away with anything. All you guys that need justice. There's a day coming. It's a different epic season. Your job, your job is not judgment. You're not to judge the world. You're in the great and glorious, great and terrible's coming. And guess what? That won't be your ministry. Your ministry is not judgment. Well, the Old Testament prophets, it was a different epic season. In the Old Testament, God was teaching us that sin needs sin deserves judgment so that there can be justice. But when Jesus died on the cross, all the all the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. So what did Jesus do? He created justice, he created justice so God could release mercy. We say, Well, how about Ananias and Sapphira? Wait a second. God can kill anyone he wants but he doesn't need to, to create justice. In the Old Testament, before the cross, remember, judgment. there was judgment to create justice because there was no redemption. And so what was the, what's the moral of the Old Testament story? Sin deserves to be judged. The soul that sins shall die. But guess what? We're hidden in the Trojan horse of Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross... How many of you know that it changed heaven's perspective? Why? Now, God fulfilled justice so that he no longer had to release judgment. See, God no longer has to give you what you deserve. You know why? He already gave it to Jesus. And there's a, here's my last comment You didn't get into the kingdom through your works. I, this is so funny. Hollywood deserves to be judged. Well, how about you? There is some this there's this weird thing in Christianity that once we get right with God and we start walking in wholeness, it's it's somehow somehow we have this short term memory loss where it was while we were sinners that we were invited into the kingdom. And so somehow we forget that although our life may be pretty clean, we didn't get here because of our acts. We got here because of His. So, so listen. Why do we judge sinners for acting like sinners? <laughs> no, no, wait. Don't clap. Just think about this. I want you to think. I'm, thank you for the. But, I know, I'm preaching good. But the point isn't that. <laughs> the point is this. It's like... See, Jesus said this. He said... He said, the uh, uh, law and the prophets were preached until John. And since that day, everybody's been forcing their way into the kingdom. What's he talking about? The law said, you're not good enough. You can't come in here. Here's the rules. You didn't keep them. Stay out. Okay. The prophets said, you deserve judgment. You can't, well, you can't come in. The, get, out of the, get away from the kingdom. You can't come in here. Remember the Pharisees? Jesus said to the Pharisees, You don't come into the kingdom and you resist anyone who tries to get in? Why? Because the law said, you didn't keep the rules. The prophet said, you deserve judgment. But what happened? Through through a violent act of grace, people people who don't deserve it, started forcing their way into the kingdom. The cross of Christ became a battering ram where people forced themselves past the law, past the prophets... And they, and they rolled in through the Trojan horse of Jesus. We were hidden in Christ. We got into the kingdom, hidden in Christ. And, God, and Jesus called it violent. Why was it violent? Because we had violence against the, the law and the prophets. We violently entered the kingdom because we were resisted by the law and the prophets. And yet Jesus forced us into the kingdom through a violent act of grace. We're salt and light. What does that mean? We are salt. We are preservation. We are light. We are revelation. People, I hear people say stupid stuff. Like, in the last days, the light will get lighter and the darkness will get darker. The metaphor doesn't work. If you turn the lights up here, in, in here, the darkness wouldn't get darker while the light got lighter. The metaphor doesn't work. The only way darkness could get darker while the light gets brighter is if you put the light under a basket. And Jesus said, don't put your light under a basket. In fact, I'll set it on a hill. What's the point? It is scientifically impossible to set a light on a hill, turn it up, and have darkness get darker. It's just the way that we soothe our conscience that our ministry is still good even though our city sucks. And that's got to change. People say other stupid stuff. Our, our citizenship is not of this world. That's not true. We have dual citizenship. Paul argued he was a Roman citizen. Jesus said, give to Caesar, that's what Caesar's, and give to God, that's what God. How many of you know when Second Corinthians five seventeen? when you became a new creation, you became the first creation, that word new means never before created. You became the first creature to ever live in two dimensions simultaneously. You're seated in heavenly places with Christ, which is a reality and not a philosophy. And you're also very much a citizen of earth. You're supposed to take the citizenship you have of heaven and you're supposed to bring it to earth. That's your job. Bring heaven to earth. Stop excusing the fact that your city's going to hell and it's not your problem. If it's not your problem, whose problem is it? You've been given the responsibility for the earth. And you're not supposed to sing the dirge over the earth. You're supposed to play the flute. Are you with me? The second part. It says we're salt. Salt's preservation. Jesus said if the salt taste, becomes tasteless, it's good for nothing except for be thrown out under the feet of men. What did they do? They would salt all their food. No refrigeration. Salt all their food. So you can imagine, they'd reuse the salt over and over and over. They'd taste the salt every time they salted something to make sure that it didn't taste like fish instead of salt. Because if it tastes like fish, they go, okay, this salt's saturated, it's not going to... Then they would take that saturated salt and they would throw it on their streets, it would rain and it would turn into hard pavement. That's why it's trampled under men's feet. That was their pavement. Now, how do you tell if the salt, if the salt is not going to preserve anymore? Starts to taste like the thing it's supposed to be preserving. How many you know that we aren't called to reflect the culture? Called to transform it. How do you know if the salt's lost its flavor? Well, if you're judging the people that you're supposed to be preserving, you've pretty well lost your ability to preserve. How many know 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Why is it that we're letting the prophets judge? How how, how come we're judging people when in the New Testament we're supposed to be judging prophecy? How come people can prophesy terrible things and they go unaccountable? There's no prophetic culture. How many know it's not the pro- people who need to be judged? It's the prophecies who need to be judged. And it's time for us to develop an apostolic global culture that when the prophets speak, they know that their words are going to go through a sift called the Bible. And someone's going to send them a little note and say, nice try, keep trying, please don't release that word. Because it's time for us to develop a kingdom culture where the prophets are submitted to people who judge their prophetic words, and when their words aren't comforting, extolling, and, and, and exhorting, we go, uh, that doesn't feel like God. That feels like the dirge. How many you know we don't need the dirge? I was in San Francisco recently, and they brought me another negative prophetic word about San Francisco. San Francisco going to have an earthquake. Jeez, at least make it a hurricane. You know, if it's an act of God, at least make it God. And I just wrote to the fellow, you know, nice fellow. I just said, please don't help us anymore to our city. We don't need your help anymore. It's the East Coast people. It's almost always the East Coast people who like to prophesy. They stay a long ways away. I mean, can you imagine if we sent them? And well, uh, here's a word we have for you: a hurricane's going to destroy your people. <laughs> in the name of love. Does it make sense that we say God's so mad at America about abortions, He's going to prove it by killing a whole bunch of people? We don't even realize it, but we're actually part of the problem. People abort their children because they don't know about the love of God, and we represent God as only having two attitudes, happy or I'm going to kill you. How many know that God has all the gamuts of emotion, and in fact, He has emotions that we've never even experienced yet? Come on. But He grieves, yes. Does God get mad about everything? I don't know. I had a dad like that. But I don't have a heavenly father like that. Come on. It's time for us to stop singing the dirge that's supposed to have died with John. That's why John lost his head. Why did the last prophet lose his head? Because God severed. That way of thinking. Where did Jesus die? He died on the cross on Galgotha. Why was it Galgotha? It means the place of the skull. Why did Jesus die at the place of the skull? Why did he not lose his head? Because we're supposed to have the mind of Christ, not the mind of John. Would you stand, please? Do you realize every time you ask Jesus to come back quickly that you are sentencing billions of people to hell. Let me just say it again. When we ask Jesus to come back quickly, we are sentencing billions of people to hell. That should matter to us. If it doesn't, it's the problem. I want to propose to you, it's time to sing the play of the flute. We should be so attractive that harlots break in To our meetings. Weep over our feet. Because they feel so comfortable around somebody who doesn't condemn them. So put your hand on your heart. Say this, Lord, make me a flute player. And teach me to dance. And Lord, help me to bring hope in a hopeless season. Help me to bring joy joy to people who are depressed depressed. and help me to take the unshakable kingdom kingdom and stabilize stabilize the kingdom that's shaking shaking. so that the kingdom of this world world becomes the the kingdom of our God. Thank you very much.